Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Well, with 20 minutes on the clock, we are going to finish the book of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. We have been kind of going back and forth to two different sides of the battle. First, we saw that David had been called up to serve in the army of the Philistines. And then we saw the other side that Saul the king had, um, had gone and he had camped and seen the Philistine armies and was greatly afraid. And the Lord wasn't responding to him. So he turned to the occult. He, turned to, he found a witch, uh, 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 somebody who was doing uh, uh, a medium, somebody who would call forth the spirits of the dead. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure that she was more surprised than when anyone, when a spirit actually appeared. And, uh, and, and so now Saul goes into battle uh, after being told by, by what, appeared to be the spirit of, of the prophet Saul who had died, telling him that the Lord was finally going to deal with him, that he was going to die, and the kingdom was being taken from him. And it says that uh, the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead at Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchasua. And the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the archers overtook him, and they wounded him critically. And in, you, if you've seen enough of these kind of you know, war movies, you know, Braveheart, Lord of the Rings, so on. You know, you could see how this would go. There's sort of a, a route taking place, and, and Jonathan and his other brothers have fallen already, and now there's just a few fighting encircled, and they're trying to protect their king, but the archers now have the high ground, and the arrows have struck Saul, so maybe he has one or two or maybe even three arrows, out, you know, stuck in him as he continues to fight, and they're trying to protect him. And he says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me, because he knows what will happen. He, he says they'll come, and, and then they'll, they'll really go to town on me. He knows what will happen. Maybe they'll, they'll, um, they'll, they'll kill me, but, but they won't do it quick. Maybe they'll, they'll um, mutilate him. Maybe they would abuse him physically or sexually before, before his death. Uh, you know, you, you can read the stories in secular history, but also in the Bible itself, of, of how these ancient kings and chiefs and rulers were treated if they were captured in battle. It was not good. Saul is saying, look, I am going to die anyway. I, I've been shot with arrows. We are going to lose this battle. It is better that I die quickly than that I die uh, in, the, in a horribly grotesque way. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So ta- Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. All right. Before I get into anything else, I think it would be fair to ask the question, is this a biblical commentary on assisted suicide? I would be very, very hesitant. I'd be very, very hesitant to use this verse as some sort of commentary on the idea of assisted suicide. I would. Uh, I'm very hesitant on that. I'm, I'm incredibly hesitant. Um, assisted, physician-assisted suicide is a very, very nuanced topic. And even though we have been having debates about it for decades at this point in American society. 
I do not believe that we have had serious conversation about it, either inside the church or in American society at large. I, I don't. I don't believe we have had serious conversation about it. I, I believe we have had uh, people made, people have made sort of emotional pleas on both sides. You have had people bring up uh, who are for uh, physician-assisted suicide who have brought up like the most heartbreaking, worst-case scenario situations, and then there are people who are against it who who bring up the like boogeyman sort of like if you do this, then they'll come for this, and this will happen next, and the next thing you know, it's Nazi Germany. So either side hasn't actually had a conversation. We've just had these emotional pleas, and then everybody makes makes up their mind based off of which way their heartstrings have been pulled. I know I'm oversimplifying this, but I think in general terms, it's true. And I know it's certainly been true inside the church. I have never once been part of a nuanced biblical conversation around the topic. It's either just been one way or the other, and maybe this has been your church experience in general, where somebody asks a question, and then the powers that be within a church or denomination, they've already made up their minds, and they dismiss anything that is outside of what they've already decided. So what I'm saying is we haven't actually had a conversation, even though we've been debating this subject for over 20, 30 years. What happened here in in 1 Samuel isn't a commentary so much as it's just an account. This is what happened to Saul. I am currently, personally, you might say, well, Adam, what's your view? And that's fair. I am neutral on the subject of physician-assisted suicide. And that might horrify somebody. Oh my gosh, Adam, you're not 100% against it? I'm not 100% against it. But I'm also incredibly not for it either. I'm neutral on the subject. I think we need to have conversations. The problem is that nobody wants to have a conversation. We just want to yell at each other, which is true about most things right now anyway. I, I, think, I think we should at least have some conversation. And quite honestly, um, if we are honest with ourselves, there are situations in hospice care where somebody is fairly far along in their process where they are so hopped up on morphine or similar drugs that um, the difference between how end-of-life care is currently accepted and some forms of physician-assisted suicide is the difference in days. It is. We, we don't have a fully natural death process. Um, so all I'm saying is, is that it's a very nuanced conversation. It's an incredibly personal conversation, and it's one that we just don't seem willing to have. But this Bible verse is not one that I would want to use to create a theological or biblical position on. Okay? That's all I'm saying. But... His, his armor bearer won't do it. He won't be the one to kill the king. So Saul draws his own sword, and he basically falls down on top of it. He kills himself. And so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. And when the Israelites along the valley and across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. So basically there are people who lived along the border towns. And they could see that their army had been routed and that their king had died. And they got out. Because they realized this is basically like people who lived in um, like Kharkiv and and Kirshan and some of these border towns in uh, Ukraine. But they realized, hey, the Russians are coming. 
I got to get out of here now um, because, you know, it doesn't matter what's going to, what kind of counter surge will come. The Philistines are going to come in and plunder. So they got out now. The next came, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off his head. They stripped him of his armor. They sent messengers throughout the lands of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtarosh and fashioned his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all of their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan, and they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they buried them. They took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and then they fasted seven days. So, this is the end of King Saul. The, the shift in the narrative from 1st to 2nd Samuel is, is marked by the death of King Saul. And then when we go next, big surprise, I know, we're going to go to 2nd Samuel next. But when we go to 2nd Samuel, the narrative shifts and will be about David moving towards the throne and then his reign as king of Israel. But the end of Saul is needlessly tragic. It's needlessly tragic. Um, I, I want to kind of give a, a, a reflection back, because there's not much to say on, on chapter 31. I mean, he, he died tragically. His sons died tragically. Um, I appreciate the bravery of these valiant men from Jabesh Gilead who, who went and did right by their king. Um, there's something about, you know, it's funny, like I, I genuinely, genuinely and generally believe that what's called Christian nationalism in the church in America is a, is a bad or a negative thing. Um, I, I genuinely believe, uh, that the church and the state should be separate and, and that not only should they be, but it's, it's better that they be, um, and, and, and the original American Christians wanted it that way. I don't mean to get into this minefield, but, but here's the point I'm trying to make. Is for all of that, for all of that, as much as I want the church out of politics, because I don't believe we're here for the kingdoms of this world, I believe that we're here for the kingdom of heaven. And I don't believe that being salt and light in this world means that we work to like make Americans, America some kind of theocracy. With all that being said, I love patriotism. And there's something about doing the right thing for your people. Uh, there's, something, there's something stirring about that. There was something so stirring about um, when the queen died. And I shed a tear when David Beckham, the, the famous soccer player from England, stood in line even though he's one of, you know, the richest men in his country. He's one of the most famous people in his country. He's one, you know, he has all this luxury and they offered him, you're, you're a celebrity, you don't have to stand in this line. But he stood in line with everyone else to pay his respects to the queen. There was something incredibly patriotic about that. And it, it really moved me. Um, there, are, there are things, I, 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 you know, when you hear stories of people doing heroic things in and after 9-11. Uh, you know, you hear the stories of, of fire departments that, that 
loaded up trucks and sent uh, sent their their trucks and their firefighters from uh, Iowa and Montana and South Carolina and firefighters here in Portland got on airplanes and flew so that they could go help. That is incredibly stirring to me. And this is the same thing. Saul was a bad king. Saul was not a good guy. But they did something right for their people and for their king. And this is an incredibly stirring story. This is, I I just can't say enough about these guys. Um, But all that being said, other than that, there's not much to say about this chapter. Saul died. It's incredibly tragic. But if you look back at the whole book, it didn't have to be this way. Israel wanted a king. And if you look in, in the law, the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it was pretty clear that God knew there would be a king. He made establishments in the law for when there would be a king. So there was always going to be one. But Israel was impatient. I believe personally, that God was always going to raise up David to be the king. That's my personal belief. Can't prove it, but it's what I, what I believe, having read the Bible for, what, the last 30 years. David was always going to be the king, and God was going to tell the prophet Samuel one day, I want you to go to Bethlehem. There's a guy named Jesse there, and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be the king. I think that was always supposed to happen. But Israel said, we want a king. And we want one now. And we want one so we can be like everyone else. And so God said, fine, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so he told Samuel, go get this guy, Saul. And Saul started off good. There was a lot of admirable things about young Saul, the new king. There were a lot of things that you looked at young Saul, the new king, and you thought, that seems promising. But what brought him down, what brought him down was pride. What brought him down was continual disobedience. What brought him down was that when God would say to do one thing, he would do a lot of it, but not all of it. He would do some of it, most of it, but there would still be things undone. The breaking point was when God said, I want you to go and attack this city and take no plunder, no spoils of war, nothing, wipe them Wipe it out completely. Nothing is to be left. Because what was going on in that city was so evil, so corrupt, that God wanted nothing left. And what did Saul do? He kept the best things. He kept the best livestock. He kept the best treasure. He ignored it. That was the breaking point. And from then on, the kingdom slipped away from him. Saul lived in jealousy. Saul sought to control his power, even though it had been given to him by God. He said, no, this is mine. I have to take hold of it. I have to keep it. And there are so many parallels that you can see to our modern world. Where what do we have that hasn't been given to us by God? Yet there are people all across what we might call the church who seem to want to cling on, hold on to something that was never theirs to begin with. It was just given to them by God. But then somebody comes along and they see them as a threat instead of a a friend. 
and we fight against them. And we fight against each other. And disobedience creeps in and compromise creeps in. And then there's David. Now David also has compromise. That's an interesting thing to note. Even here at the end, David goes off to live with the Philistines. We talked about that last episode. And, and you might think he gets away with it. The grace of God, he gets away with it. But he comes back, there's scars there. First of all, there are scars that we don't know about. Um, I mean, I don't think you should have to say spoiler alert in the Bible. There is, um, down the line, right, there's, there's uh, bas- basically like one of, one of David's kids uh, rapes an, one of his stepsisters, right? And abuse runs in circles, in, in cycles. When David's two wives and the sons and daughters are taken away, you're kidding yourselves. You are absolutely kidding yourself if you don't think that some of those, those, those people were messed with sexually. You're kidding yourselves if some of those children weren't beaten or they didn't see their moms raped or they themselves weren't molested. There were scars from that whole ordeal that even though like the story reads like, yes, this tragic thing happened, but then they went and rescued them. And not only did they come back, but they came back with more stuff than than they, when they had before, it reads like, oh, you know, actually this horrible thing turned into a great thing. I've actually heard sermons like that. You know, this thing seems so dark, but then it turned into this great thing and it turns into this like a positivity sermon. There are scars here. If you read between the lines that never get addressed. The fact that David's taking multiple wives, something the king was not supposed to do, something none of them were supposed to do, but the king specifically in the Old Testament law was not to take wives for himself, wasn't supposed to amass chariots, which he's going to do, wasn't supposed to amass horses for himself, which he was going to do later. There are all these things that he wasn't supposed to do, and it starts here towards the end of 1 Samuel. He's starting to do these things. Now, why is it that he didn't fail in the way that Saul failed? Look, let me tell you, nobody's perfect. The major difference between Saul and David is that David wanted God. When it says that David was a man after God's own heart, that that doesn't mean that David was perfect or got everything right. It just meant that David wanted God. And there are people who who struggle, they mess up, they don't don't get everything right, but they want Jesus. They want to know God. At the end of the day, like there are times, if you think there are times where I haven't thought about just walking away from faith, and you, you say, what? You're a pastor. I know. But there are times where I've just thought, man, you know, my life would be a lot easier if I were just a good person who worked a normal job who was not particularly religious. I could just be like a moral person. And then I remember that Jesus is real. And I remember that my sins are many and great. And that Jesus loved me so much and loves me so much that he died to forgive my sins. And the difference between David and Saul, and, and I don't think it's an accident that David and Saul, their, their two trajectories are juxtaposed to the way they are at the end of this book. The difference between them is that David always came back to the Lord. That at his darkest moment, back in, uh, in chapter 30, it says, David found strength in the Lord his God. At his darkest moment, back in uh, chapter 
uh, 28, Saul did not. Saul went and sought the occult. He went and sought the powers of the world. You might be discouraged. Oh, you know, I've messed up. I've done this. I'm, I'm not perfect. I figured these things out. But you know what? God works in us, and he is still working on us. The question is, is do we stay committed to him, even in our darkest moments? And that's the story of David, is that he stayed focused on following God. He messed up. He did a lot of things wrong. When we get into 2 Samuel, we'll find out he does a lot more things wrong. And the Bible will call him out on it. But that doesn't mean, that does not mean that God's not working and moving in his life. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. As always, we release new episodes, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. Videos are available on our Facebook page. You can follow us at Faith on Hill on Facebook and Instagram. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. online and in person. And we have small groups throughout the week. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.